Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 1, A Brief History of Secret History, Part 1. In our last episode, we introduced the concept of Western esotericism. Now, we hardly scratch the surface of this vast and complex historical tale, but you have to start somewhere. This podcast series will generally be all about the details, but before we dive into our long historical narrative in this episode and in episode two, we're going to take a quick overview of the subject, starting in antiquity and making our way forward to modern times, with the aim of highlighting the scope of the podcast and pointing out very broadly some of the myriad interconnections and important streams that make up Western esotericism. So tune your mental receptors to overload and adjust your historical focus to wide angle as we do a lightning survey of Western esotericism from ancient times to the present. You'll recall from last week that we took a definition of Western esotericism from the website for the Center for the History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam. It listed the following elements of the Western esoteric synthesis. Quote, Gnosticism, Hermetism, and Neoplatonic Theurgy, Astrology, Alchemy, and Natural Magic, Christian Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, Christian Theosophy, and Illuminism, The Currents of Modern Occultism, Spiritualism, Traditionalism, The New Age Movement, Neo-Paganism, Ritual Magical Groups, and a host of contemporary alternative spiritualities and forms of popular occulture. This is a seriously long story. In fact, it pretty much encompasses all of Western history, or at least some intellectual currents which go back all the way to the beginnings of Western history. These all arise in the period known as Late Antiquity. So what is Late Antiquity exactly? The Late Antique period is a somewhat blurry era drawn by historians between what we call Classical Antiquity and the Middle Ages. So Classical Antiquity, we can say for our purposes, runs from something like the middle of the 8th century BCE, that's around the year 750 or roughly the period when the Homeric poems were written down and the Greeks began to emerge from their Dark Age in earnest, until, let's say, the 2nd century CE, the height of the Roman imperial culture. It was in this period that our three currents, Neoplatonic philosophy, Gnosticism, and Hermetism, arose and thrived. These were Greco-Roman movements, but certain cities, Rome, Athens, and especially Alexandria in Egypt should be mentioned, were particularly important centers for their development. Let's have a quick look at Neoplatonism first of all. A quick side note on the term Neoplatonism. I don't like it. I tend to refer to the thinkers usually known as Neoplatonists as late Platonists. Why? Well, the Neo in Neoplatonists seems to imply, and in fact does imply, that these thinkers were doing something new, and thus something different from what Plato was doing. Now, most modern scholars agree with this. When they read Plotinus or Iamblichus, they see late antique authors whose concerns are utterly different from those found in the Platonic corpus, the works of Plato. The problem, though, is that pretty much everyone up until modern times thought that these guys, and especially Plotinus, were expositors of Plato's ideas, pure and simple. Now, we're probably right to say that the Neoplatonists were pretty neo, but at the same time, I prefer neutral terminology where I can get it, so we just say late Platonists. It just means Platonists working in late antiquity, and that's it, so no value judgments. Okay, so who were the late Platonists? Or more basically still, what is a Platonist in the first place? The first requirements for being any kind of Platonist, you'd think, would be somehow basing your thought on the thought of Plato. This is a good starting point. In fact, this podcast will make the case that Plato one of the greatest philosophers of the classical period, and some would say the greatest philosopher in history, is certainly the most important single figure in the history of Western esotericism. And we will be devoting many episodes to little-known aspects of his thought, which are key to the development of Western esoteric ideas. I don't want to give too much away at this point, but we should say the following. 
Plato's thought was codified or systematized in a messy and individualistic way by thinkers from around the first century CE onward into a kind of school of thought, which we can legitimately call Platonism. But we should keep in mind that the Platonists didn't necessarily call themselves that. More on that later. Platonists differed very greatly in the interpretations they gave to Plato's thought, which is only natural because Plato is an author who behaves very tricksterishly. He refuses to lay down what he really thinks. He sometimes seemingly contradicts himself all over the place if you read his corpus as a whole. And he writes these dialogues in which he's not actually a character, but a bunch of other people are characters, and he's putting words into their mouths. You never know to what degree the words are Plato's and to what degree the words are those of the actual people, etc., etc., etc. But there are some key elements which we find in all the ancient Platonists, and which, as we shall see, are absolutely essential to the development not only of Western esotericism, but of Western cultures across the board. So these can be, in my view, considered a kind of core definitional typology of what it is to be a Platonist. They are briefly the belief in an immaterial immortal soul, the belief in immaterial higher worlds or realities, and the belief in innate faculties which allow humans to know these invisible realities. In other words, a human being is a soul, essentially. It exists in a realm that includes both the material phenomenal world and higher invisible realities, but it is able to access those realities. So this is the working definition of a Platonist for the purposes of this podcast. You'd actually be surprised how little rigorous definition has been applied to terms like Platonist, Platonizing, Platonic, etc., etc., in the history of philosophy, but that's a story for another time. For now, remember these three points, which are what I consider the key core of Platonism, and we'll move on. Now, the late Platonists, Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, and Proclus, to name the most famous, created powerful systems of thought which interpreted Plato in a way that would dominate ideas about what Plato meant until modern times. When late antique readers read Plato, they read him through what we can generally call a late Platonist lens. In fact, as we shall see, the late Platonist reading of Plato was dominant until very recently indeed, the early 19th century in fact. Until that time it was proverbial that Plato was an author who wrote esoterically with a hidden subtext, who believed in a hierarchical reality with multiple invisible realms of thought and being existing alongside or above or within the realm of matter and the senses and who believe that mankind has innate abilities which allow it to turn away from matter and the senses and exercise higher faculties of knowledge, which can save the human soul from error and purify the inner sight, revealing the truth in all its splendor. These are all late Platonist doctrines based on Plato's writings, but they're not what modern analytical philosophers necessarily see when they read Plato. There are two other crucial aspects to late Platonism which we should highlight here. Firstly, these thinkers were followers of traditional religions, philosophically understood. They rejected the new religion of Christianity. In fact, the first anti-Christian polemic we know of was written by the 2nd century Platonist Celsus, and Porphyry, who's a very prominent thinker whose work is of the utmost importance in the Latin Middle Ages, wrote a lost text entitled Against the Christians. Obviously, that one wasn't too important in the Latin Middle Ages, which is probably why it doesn't survive. As time passed, Platonist philosophy became a kind of elite intellectual resistance movement in the face of the encroaching Christian worldview. Against what they saw as the Christian's novel claims, they offered a worldview of astonishing power and completeness, which explained the traditional gods of Greco-Roman paganism with a subtlety equal to that of classic Christian theology, and crucially, which claimed a much longer, indeed a perennial, pedigree. The Platonists set themselves up not primarily as defenders of Plato, but as defenders of an ancient perennial tradition of truth, 
And they backed their positions on that basis, depicting the Christians as parvenu Johnny-come-latelys. The competing claims for an ancient pedigree that arise in this period have had huge reverberations throughout the history of the West, so we should pay strict attention here. The key question which arises in late antiquity is this. Who has the oldest, and thus the most authoritative, tradition? As we shall see, everybody claims to, and everyone claims that their opponent's claims are spurious. So it gets really good. Secondly, the later Platonists, and especially Iamblichus, who's one of the most fascinating figures in the whole story of Western esotericism, and don't worry, we'll be devoting considerable attention to him in future episodes, developed a theory of what's called theurgy. This term, literally God-working, was a theoretical justification of ceremonial magic on philosophic grounds. Ceremonies were now absorbed into philosophy, given the highest of goals, and put on a theoretically nuanced basis. Many of the things familiar from modern occultism, or even from cheesy 1970s occult horror films, like magical symbols drawn on the floor, you know, the classic magic circle, special incense, incantations in unknown mysterious tongues, and the list goes on, now were tools for elevating the soul of the philosopher to higher realities. Forget about souring your neighbor's milk, or making that person fall in love with you, or even making Faustian bargains with dark powers. The Platonists were concerned with elevating the soul of the sage to the level of the supreme divine reality using rituals. The history of magic would never be the same again. And not only because Ficino in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn would one day read Iamblichus and adapt his ideas. These ideas also found their way into some of the foundational documents of Christianity, the pseudo-Dionysian corpus as it's known. And from there spawned a long and involved tradition of spiritual magic within mainstream Orthodox and Catholic traditions. There's also a rich and complex Islamic legacy to these ideas, so there'll be a lot to explore in the theurgic tradition in the course of this podcast. So the late Platonists were a philosophic movement, but it's worth re-emphasizing that this is a movement which we should view as a way of life embracing aspects of what we call religion, and even in some cases practical magic, and one which stood up for traditional paganism and put magic on a theoretically compelling basis. We shall return to these thinkers soon in greater detail in the course of the podcast. But now let's turn to the Hermetists and the Gnostics. Let's start with Hermetism. First of all, it didn't exist. That is to say, we have very little evidence that there was ever any Hermetism in antiquity, if we mean by Hermetism some kind of movement with followers, a social structure, etc. What we do have is a number of fascinating texts written in Greek, probably in Egypt and probably in the 1st or 2nd centuries CE, which are associated with the legendary sage Hermes Trismegistus. Now, Trismegistus means thrice greatest in Greek. This figure shares a hazy but fertile relationship with the Egyptian deity Tehuti, better known by the Greek version of his name, Thoth. These documents, known collectively as Hermetica, cover a huge range of subjects, many of them treating astrological and magical matters. But a collection was made at some point of what have been called the philosophical as opposed to the practical Hermetica, and these documents make up our modern corpus hermeticum. Now, these documents will have been written by someone or by some group, but there's no really compelling evidence for a hermetic school of thought or religion or path or what have you in antiquity. What we do have are the texts, but what texts they are. They're linguistically Greek, as I mentioned above, but they do show some signs of native Egyptian influence on their thought. Overall, we can speak of the philosophic hermetic writings as a particular genre of non-philosophic Platonist thought, with its own particularities, but very much characterized by the three essential Platonist factors of soul, higher worlds, and access to those worlds. 
These documents have a long, convoluted, and utterly fascinating history, and I don't just mean the famous incident where Marsilio Ficino, the famed Renaissance Platonist, was called off of his translations of Plato by his patron Cosimo de' Medici to concentrate on the more ancient and important works of thrice greatest Hermes, the technical Hermetica rather than the philosophical Corpus Hermeticum, have a rich late antique and medieval history waiting to be explored, and explore it we shall, including the huge and little-known Arabic Hermetic tradition, which has had such a huge influence on Latin Christendom, and the Orthodox and Latin Christian receptions of Hermetic materials, which of course found their way into Western esotericism. We'll be looking closely at the non-philosophic Hermetica, so-called. These are the astrological and magical texts, which actually had a much greater influence on the whole history of the West, even though the Philosophic Hermetica come to prominence in the Renaissance, and will hopefully settle the question once and for all as to whether there really was such a thing as the Hermetic movement or school of thought in late antiquity. Okay, well, we probably won't do that, because no one can agree about it, but we'll try to give you the materials you'll need to make up your mind for yourself. Last but not least in our survey of important late antique constituents of Western esotericism, we have Gnosticism. I don't know if you could tell from my tone of voice, but I put that last word in quotation marks. Gnosticism has been a kind of esoteric palimpsest throughout the ages. Everyone and everything with some kind of esoteric Platonist bent has been at some time or another called Gnostic, or a form of Gnosticism, or even a, a recurrence of the Gnostic heresy if one is of an orthodox mindset. And to make things even more confusing, we also find an idea that there are Gnostics throughout history who have nothing to do with the late antique Gnostics. So, for example, the Shiite Erfani thinkers have been called Gnostics in the works of Henri Corbin. And the idea that the Gnostic Gnosis, the supposed higher transcendent knowledge, which is supposed to be what Gnosticism was all about, has crept into the study of mysticism more generally, leading to all manner of suspect generalizations. It's all very confusing. So who were the late antique Gnostics? Our problem here is sort of the opposite problem that faced us in the case of the Hermetics. We suffer not from a lack of evidence that people called Gnostics lived and worshipped, but rather from a welter of claims and counterclaims that this or that early Christian or esoteric Jewish group was Gnostic. Unfortunately, most of what we know about Gnostic thought has been until recently gleaned from the Christian heresiologists, their sworn enemies. But fortunately, in 1945, all that changed to some degree, with the discovery of a trove of documents in Egypt, usually known as the Nag Hammadi Corpus, named after a village near the site of the find. These documents, written in Coptic and dating broadly from late antiquity, the dating gets really complicated, were clearly produced by a community of people who would have been accused as being Gnostics by Catholic Christians, but who just as clearly inhabited a thought world which is very difficult to confine under any single label. There are three Hermetic texts in the Corpus, and there's a partial translation into Coptic of Plato's Republic. In fact, the category of Gnostic has come under serious withering scrutiny in recent decades, and should probably just be discarded, except that no one seems to have a better alternative. Even biblical demiurgic traditions leaves out some of our favorite Gnostic movements, like the Sethians, whose biblical credentials are fairly low, and are much more a form of religious Platonist thought. But let's go ahead and be sloppy and cheeky and say a few things about Gnosticism anyway. We can always take it all back later when we speak to specialist scholars on these traditions. Firstly, the term Gnostic refers to a hugely diverse range of late antique movements, as we've indicated. Some were serious contenders on the same stage as what ended up becoming mainstream Christianity, like Valentinianism, for example, or Manichaeanism, if we consider that a Gnostic movement, which some do and some don't. With bishops, church hierarchy, big congregations numbering in the thousands, and the rest of it. 
but others seem to have been tiny esoteric study circles if they existed at all beyond the imaginations of the writers of the texts. So the range of types of movement is huge, but they're all broadly speaking religious movements rather than, say, philosophical in the strict sense. We do get a lot of what we might call hardcore philosophy, though, in some Gnostic texts, particularly metaphysical speculations. They also tend to be soteriological movements, that is to say, like Christianity, they see mankind as being in a fallen state and in need of supernatural redemption. The texts usually classed as Gnostic also vary hugely, but we can note a few typical characteristics. One is a tendency towards mythology, that is, mythic narratives, especially of cosmic journeys through the levels of reality and of a fall from a primordial state to the current state of affairs, which is seen as corrupt. It's typical of Gnostic thought that a primordial catastrophe is thought to have occurred, and mankind as a consequence is suffering in the material realm, while its true home, in a classically Platonist formation, lies beyond this realm of corruption in a perfect spiritual world. We see a lot of apocalyptic literature as well in Gnosticism. Think of richly symbolic narrations of the type familiar from the Apocalypse of John in the Bible, but even weirder. Lastly, of course, as we mentioned, Gnosticism is famous for the concept of gnosis. This is the knowledge beyond knowledge, which gives salvation to the Gnostic from the illusions of the fallen world, and hopefully allows him or her to ascend to the true spiritual realm beyond. The term gnosis is Greek, and in its basic meaning, it's simply one of a number of ways of expressing the idea of knowing or knowledge. But in Gnosticism, we are told, it is endued with a technical meaning which raises it to a transcendent level. This is no mere knowledge or even wisdom. This is super-wisdom or hyper-knowledge. Sadly, we don't find a reference to gnosis, or even to a transcendent type of knowing under another name in all the traditions labeled Gnostic. More on that later in the podcast. It is fair to say for now, though, that a kind of salvific higher knowledge or wisdom is a hallmark of many Gnostic systems. If your mind is going back to our definition of Platonism here, you're on the right track. As we've seen, late antique Platonism had as one of its fundamental tenets a scale of types of knowledge or knowing, and a transcendent wordless knowing beyond knowing features in the systems of many of the late Platonists in many Gnostic texts, as well as in many texts found in the Corpus Hermeticum. The place where we don't find it very much is in mainstream Christianity, and maybe this is one of the structural elements which binds our three currents of thought together outside of and sometimes in opposition to Orthodox Christian thought, the access to higher consciousness, even to some ineffable consciousness of the divine itself, by ordinary philosophers or worshippers through innate faculties. So let's recap our survey so far. To help to digest all this information, let's turn to one of the most important esoteric sciences, the art of cocktail mixing. To mix a basic late antique esoteric cocktail, take a generous measure of Platonism. This may be technical philosophic Platonism, or it may be what is often called popular or religious Platonism. As long as your brand of choice contains our three primary ingredients mentioned above, it will do nicely. Add a measure of ideas about higher faculties of knowledge which transcend the world of the senses, giving access to visionary or ineffable states of hyper-knowing. Add to taste and shake well. Pour over the ice of syncretist religious ferment in the late Roman period. Judaism, nascent Christianity, and traditional pagan cults will all add a delicious flavor of their own. Serve with a wedge of esotericism. This is not a drink for the masses, but for the privileged few. You now have a refreshing beverage which I like to call the underworld of Platonism. Add a dash of tonic water for a variant known as the chronic Neoplatonic. Optionally, garnish with an olive of ritual acts of power for a drink known as the Theurgic, 
delicious enjoyed after a long day of summoning daimones to visual appearance as part of a philosophical quest for the highest realities. We've been concentrating for a bit on a period of history, late antiquity, and three specific movements of late antique thought which feature importantly in the Western esoteric traditions. But the next items on our list, astrology, alchemy, and natural magic, are scientific concepts with less of a historical location. That's right, gentle listener, I said scientific. We can call them pseudosciences if you prefer, but there are a number of problems with that label. So for now, let's just think about them as sciences of previous eras, now largely supplanted in the West by the empirical methods of modern science. Astrology does indeed feature heavily in the thought of most of the currents of Western esotericism, and let's not forget, in most mainstream scientific cosmologies until modern times. Now, astrology is a modern usage of an ancient Greek term, astrologia, which in ancient times will have encompassed both what we call astrology and astronomy. Actually, both words are current in ancient Greek and both have various overlapping meanings. Now, firstly, we should note that, as we shall see in the course of this podcast, the astrology part of the astrology-astronomy discipline was really never the type of blithering nonsense that you read in the horoscope section of the cheap newspapers. That kind of astrology, which is a lowbrow form of what is often called judicial astrology, was actually debunked and denied by a wide range of esoteric thinkers from Plotinus to Ficino to Kepler to Crowley and many more. So what was the astrology which these thinkers did believe in? That is the stuff this podcast will mainly be dealing with. But the roots of what we call Western astronomy astrology go way back to Mesopotamian and Egyptian civilizations, so we'll try to trace the evolution of this science in a thorough, if shallow, way from the very beginning. Along the way, we'll perhaps be bursting some commonly held assumptions, such as the completely false idea that everyone before the early modern period thought that the Earth was flat, or that they all thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, or that they couldn't conceive of an infinite universe. In fact, even the Greeks had theories of a spherical Earth circling the sun in an infinite universe, and the Greeks were beginners when it came to this stuff. Eratosthenes of Samos actually measured the Earth in the 2nd century BC. And by measured the Earth, I mean really measured the Earth very accurately. But let's not give too much away at this point. Let's just say that the history of astronomy astrology is full of surprises. Now, the history of astronomy astrology is very complex, but compared to the history of alchemy, it's a model of tidiness and simplicity. With alchemy, the royal art, the art of Hermes, the philosopher's quest, the great work, the gold-making science, we're in truly strange, ambiguous, and complicated territory. From my own perspective, it's difficult even to say whether or not the earliest known Western alchemists, who unsurprisingly were writing in the late antique period, were even talking about the same sorts of things as the early modern alchemists with their cryptic emblem books, visual riddles, and endless layers of rhetorical secrecy. Were the alchemists concerned with physical transformations of substances, or with spiritual transformations of the self, or both? It's certain that the alchemists were concerned with some kind of transformations, but we can't really say more than that until we get into some detail, which we'll be doing very soon, starting with an interview with a major scholar or two working on the earliest alchemical texts known to us. The story will be long, complex, and eye-opening. Our third scientific subject is natural magic, but in terms of Western esotericism, we can add spiritual or angelic magic to this list. We've already encountered this sort of working with Platonist theurgy. Magic is one of the most difficult terms to define in the whole study of culture. The origins of the term lie in Greek, where magia is the art practiced by the magoi, an ethnic group native to the Persian Empire who were famed as practitioners of particularly potent religious rites. Think of the magi from the gospel story of the nativity and how they were able to discern the nature of the newborn Christ child through their eastern wisdom. Throughout antiquity, the term has an ambivalent reputation. 
It can mean illegal rites or practices, the kind of stuff familiar from early modern witch trials, or it can refer to religious rituals which are particularly effective and pleasing to the gods. Now, if you aren't a specialist in the history of magic, you probably think that magical practices were outlawed in the Latin Middle Ages. After all, they used to burn witches, right? Well, here you'd be wrong. In fact, the same ambivalence that we see in antique approaches to the acts of ritual power continues right through the Middle Ages. We have good magic, which might be pursued by bishops, monks, friars, and later university professors, and bad magic, which was illegal and was generally the sort of thing that you accused marginalized people of. Jews, independent-minded women, Christians of a sect that you didn't like, these are all recurring targets for medieval accusations of illegal magical practices. In the medieval Latin West, Albertus Magnus, the abbot Trithemius, and other intellectuals and highly ranked clergy wrote treatises on natural magic as opposed to the illicit arts of necromancy or demonic magic, which sought to integrate it within mainstream Christian thought, although this will have been an uneasy integration at times. We have numerous texts from the Latin Middle Ages outlining magical rituals, and recent research has made it abundantly clear that these rituals were very popular, and moreover were popular especially among clergy and monastic audiences. These were, after all, just about the only people who could read the texts. These folks seem to have been especially interested in talking to angels, so as to take advantage of their superior knowledge. If we turn to the Renaissance, we see a flowering of this tradition of spiritual magic in esoteric circles, and people were talking to angels and exploiting the occult properties of nature as a regular thing. We're clearly dealing with a complex and rich history here. One of the first subjects of the podcast will be magic, first generally, and then in Greco-Roman antiquity. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground in our survey so far, and we've reached the end of the Middle Ages, more or less. Next week, we will present part two of A Secret History of Secret History, looking at the range of esoteric movements which arose in the Renaissance and early modern periods, and even talking a bit about the incredible flowering of esoteric thought in the 19th and 20th centuries. We're getting into some better known, but no less fascinating territory, so join us for that. So until we meet again in 15th century Florence, stay esoteric. <laughs>